Welcome, everybody, to the 51st episode of Chelsea Against the World, the podcast that brings together an American and an Englishman to discuss all things Chelsea Football Club. I'm your host, Manny. And I'm your host, Simon. Manny, is this a turning point? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Turning point FC, baby. That's that's, that's our new name. Dude, it's episode 51, 51. man. 51. It is a turning point. We're closer to 100 than we are to zero. Every time I hear the the number 51, I always think about Area 51. Do you know Area 51? (laughs) I do. <laughs> it's like where the aliens are, yeah. are they hid the aliens in, I think, Roswell, New Mexico, or something it's, like that? It's Roswell, Ros- and I'm going to surprise you. Oh, you've been there. I've been there. Are you kidding me? I have been to Roswell. Really? Yeah, yeah. What were you doing there? Like, so, were you I have no theory? idea. Yeah. Were, you, were you hunting for the aliens? Yeah, I was working for this company called InfoWars. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I did, so I, I think I mentioned this a few times before, I did this thing when I graduated college called Trek America, where you basically went coast to coast. Um, started in New Jersey, went all the way to LA in a minivan with a load of random people, and I went to some fucking weird places, mate. Some really weird places, and like Roswell was one of them. We spent the afternoon in Roswell. We spent because it's near New Mexico, right? It's in New Mexico. Yeah, okay, there you go. So I spent two nights in Taos, New Mexico, um, which is at this big ski resort. I'd have no idea why we ended up. No one was skiing on that trip, but we ended up in a ski resort in Taos, New Mexico, and I had some of the best best food I've ever eaten. And then we ended up in Roswell, and what was even funnier was that on my trip there was this person from Australia who was a unique character who full on believed literally everything that was going on. But, you know, from all these leaks that have happened recently, maybe she was onto something. You right? know, it's funny when you hear the word, when the adjective unique. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it can apply so many different things, like batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's another word for unique. It's I'm not going to specifically say which definition it was. <laughs> Yeah, she was definitely unique. 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 Our coach is unique. Yeah, (laughs) unique tactics by Pochettino. Uh, But yeah, coming off a a prior episode where we were both calling for the sacking of Pochettino, (laughs) and then he turns around and and, and has a masterclass against Villa 3-1. It was a surprising surprising game. I think we both went into that game thinking that, you know, we were probably going to lose or going to penalties, you know, extra time penalties. But, you know, I have to give credit where it's due, and the tactics were spot on. The players came out and played, and... I beg to ask this question, is this a standard? This has to be the standard of Chelsea, this game. I mean, minimum, right? Right. I think no one in the world expected that to happen. I didn't watch the game live. I watched highlights afterwards. I somehow snuck through most of the result without it happening. I knew we won. I didn't end up knowing what was happening during the game. I was in work, unfortunately, so I watched it after work. And when we went 2-0 up, I was like, this is the most surprising thing I think I've ever seen. Well, maybe it's you. Maybe it's Maybe you. it's me. Yeah, yeah. Don't watch any more yeah, games. Yeah. I'm going to have a little I mean, timeout spot for you at the bar. I'm not a superstitious man, but <laughs> I right. think I see a correlation. You're, you're very unique. <laughs> I have a unique, <laughs> unique perspective on Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, what a result and what a performance. I think anyone who expected that to happen is a liar or really deluded. Yeah, no, I mean, I was able to watch it live while working at the same time. I, was, I texted you, I had really spotty Wi-Fi at the imaging center I was working at, but I, you know, it was, I was at it being played in the background, and it was quite interesting to see the tactics of him going into a 4-4-2 in defense. You know, I, it, it, we mentioned that in the previous pod, having our midfielders, Caicedo and um, Enzo, sort of playing compact, and then the fact that the space that we saw when Caicedo was an island two or three games ago you didn't see that. No. And it was important, I think, for the, for the listeners out there, the way he had his set up was obviously to see Badishio, Gusto, and Chilwell in the back four. 
Caicedo Enzo in, in the midfield too, but Nani and Nico were playing on the wings, like in this hybrid 4-4-2 in defense. And having those two individuals on the wing as opposed to Sterling is completely different. I, I mean, I think this is probably Nani's best game in a Chelsea uniform. I would suggest that it was several players' Chelsea, best true. Chelsea performance ever, actually. I think Nicholas Jackson was sublime. Cole Palmer, his standards have been very high. They've been excellent. I would suggest that was Enzo Fernandez's best performance as a Chelsea player as well, considering all the stick he's been getting in the last week or two. And Caicedo, I thought, it's just this is the point that I made last time. These midfielders are not the problem. It's the way that we've been set up. That is how you set them up. And they were just phenomenal. They were phenomenal. And I, I hear a lot of criticism about Aston Villa being poor. I think we made them look really poor. Yeah, absolutely. Really, I think... There was no outlet. Every no. single time they had possession, it was Tielemans, Luis, or Kamara in the midfield. You always saw one of Caicedo, Enzo, Connor just jump in and, 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 and disrupt the outlets because they wanted to do the long balls. Long balls. Their mm-hmm. whole idea was long balls to Ollie Watkins, right? Because yeah. we were playing a high line. They were not able to... There were maybe one or two chances where they thought they would have a long ball, but they just backtracked and passed it backwards. We were pressing, and I like using that word, we were pressing the heck out of them when they had possession. And I think it was just, it was, it was, it was great. You know, we, we give Pochettino a lot of slack, and rightfully so, for his tactical ineptitude. But in this game, it was spot on. Yeah, the setup was absolutely perfect. And I think so the first few minutes looked quite shaky, but... It, you see the marked difference when you've got a mobile back four playing. And I think Baddy Ashiel looked back to his best after a few sh- shaky moments to begin with. Him and DeSassi were sublime together as well. Yeah, they're closing off a lot of lanes. But DeSassi was fan. I thought it was one of DeSassi's best games. Yeah. I mean, they've played over 100 times together for Monaco. I think Fabregas, Cesc Fabregas made a comment this week saying that Badishir was one of the best natural ball-carrying defenders he's ever seen. Well, he's injured now again, so there you go. Um, but... This is the thing. It's like some of the, ironically, pushing out two of the most experienced players in our squad has made us better this week after yeah. all the criticism of this being a too inexperienced squad to function. Maybe some of the, the problems that we've been facing are, are layered elsewhere into the team that we've alluded to previously. I agree, 100%. 100%. And the goals were just fantastic. I think Connor Gallagher, I mean, you saw a glimpse of what he can do with the ball on his feet that he yeah. did for Charlton, what he did for... Um, you know, for Crystal Palace, you know, he's had to do that for Chelsea. Maybe he had, I think he had like one good goal against Palace last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, was was unable to score this year. His first goal was just a banger. Um, it was a great setup by Nico Jackson. Oh, really good. You know, and then I mean, just the ball in was fantastic. From I think it was Kaiseido or was it uh, Nani that played it to? It was Nani. Yeah, to, Nani Connor. Back to Connor. Yeah, and what what a what a great Those shot. Tight spaces in the penalty box that yeah. very very good. And then Kaiseido and Gusto getting the ball back and getting in the second goal right into you know the the cross Gusto cross into Nico Jackson was just fantastic and put his head on the on the ball and scored. Yeah, I think there was a lot of criticism towards Gusto in the Wolves game. I think that's been a bit of an outlier, that performance. I think he's been very good since he's joined, actually. I think the way he plays, it plays with a level of maturity most of the time that is far surpasses his age. Was he still 20, 21 now? And yeah. God, his attacking ability. It's, it, there's a case to be made if and when Reese James is ever fit to play Reese at right back and Gusto at left. Really, yeah. I think there's a real case to be made there. I think that if we're talking about Potatino's fetish for playing fullbacks out of position. I think uh, Gusto in particular is more than adept enough to play on that left-back position. 
but he was superb and the, the ball in for the box and I have to say Jackson's header was sensational yeah really hit the way he altered his body position to to knock it in from there wow I think that's Honestly, the best half of football Chelsea have played in a very, very long time. And I think, and this is no hate to Cole Palmer, but I think having Nani on that right wing was actually a little bit much better. I mean, he's a little bit faster and was able to track back because there's a lot of times when Gusto was so advanced, it was Nani making the run back when they when uh, Aston Villa was on the break. And I don't know if you could see that. I don't think Cole Palmer can do that. You know, he's, no. you know, and I think it was, it was much better suited for Nani. I don't think Sterling can do that at all. I think Sterling could do that, but I, I don't think he has it in his locker yeah. anymore. Yeah, and then just and then you know we mentioned this about Nico Jackson. He did play the left wing position, at, you know, in Spain for a little bit before he moved to the central four position. But I think at the left wing, you know, this game, and I think he played the left wing also against um, Luton Town. Yeah, uh, you know, before he went to uh, to Afcon. I think that's like his, his better suited for right now for him in this in the system. The close the way we played against Villa was the closest I've seen to how we were in pre season. Actually, I think that. From what I remember, those preseason games with Nkunku, Jackson, and Madrick and Sterling, and Nonny didn't play much during preseason, and Cole Palmer wasn't with us. But Ian Madsen, th- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the front three were quite fluid, moving in different positions, um, and that I think was happening the other last night because you, th- you saw the players popping up in different areas, and it reminded me of. Some of the tactics I saw where you essentially, oh, we were overloading areas of our attack, but not compromising the spaces in behind. And when we had more athletic, fast players like we did on Wednesday night in those positions compared to Sterling and maybe Thiago Silva, who don't really have that ability anymore, I think you see a marked difference. Um, it was an incredible first half football. And then we got to the second half with that free kick from Enzo. <sighs> I mean, there was like, I almost yelled in the middle of the office at the clinic and they're just like, what the hell is going on in that room? You know, I mean, what a just, I mean, that's, I don't know if I've seen a better free kick from a Chelsea player in, in the last three or four years than that, you know, I mean, that has to be one of the best kicks I've seen in, in a long time, yeah. you know, in a long time. Honestly, what a free kick that was. Yeah. Just, he looked like he was going to score. Like he just had that demeanor where he was just like, I'm going to put this down and I'm going to knock this in. Just that he didn't watching it back. I mean, I, I presume every Chelsea fan has watched it about five hundred oh, sure. times. Different angles, seeing Connor's reaction, it was yeah. just uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, he deserved it. I think there was a lot of shit written about him in the last couple of weeks about him wanting to leave, and he made a pretty it's just big poor st- journalism. It's just oh. poor journalism. You know, and you got these idiots on Twitter retweeting it and sourcing it and stuff like that. And I think, and they're just like responding, well, this, this is actually a legit source. No, it's not. No. And then his, you know, Fabs came out, his, you know, his agent came out and says, no, he, he understands the project. They met and Boley and um, Igbali told him, hey, listen, this is a, you know, the first couple of years can be rocky. This is a long-term project. And he understands that. Yeah. I think this would be the message to our fan base. If you haven't learned this already, is generally pr- t- pretty much only two good sources for transfer news and that's Fabrizio Romano and David Ordenstein. Absolutely. The rest. I was thinking about this as well, that is there a profession like sports journalism that has such zero consequence for for getting things wrong or deliberately making things up? Because I feel that that happens so much. Like if you look at the transfer window previously, there was such little things happening and all the clubs were clearly worried about a financial fair play. I think you've seen it. The, the message from the Everton points touching this, this is going to have teeth now so people are taking it more seriously. That people were just fishing for news. Fishing for it and like there was clearly nothing happening 
clearly nothing happening, but people were still making up stories. I just don't understand where it comes from and like the repercussions for it. It's mental. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I think in the US, there's a little bit, I wouldn't say more integrity, but there's, you know, if, 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 a, if a journalist gets something wrong, he gets called out about it in, in the media. You know, and there's actually a couple of journalists in basketball and football, like Adam Schefter in football kind of knows everything that's going on in the NFL. A couple also in, in, in the NBA, just like Fabs and and, um, and the other guy. Um, it's just one of those situations that when you have such a global sport and you're dealing with journalists in England, Spain, in France, you know, in Italy, there is no sort of fact-checking at all no. across the whole continent. Uh, and compared to you know here in the U.S. and so you're going to have these clickbait articles and that's part of part of you know journalism and making money in online advertising is clicks. That's how these marketers yeah. make money. There, there's so much money in market research. I have one of my really really good friends works for iHeartRadio and she's in the she's the VP of market research and she's just telling me there's so much money that goes into market research on what users click and mm -hmm. stuff like that and and the sensationalism is is integral in how these yeah. online publications make money. To the detriment of real news. And I think also detriment to, to the psychology of a fan base as well. I feel that this is what I've been trying to say. Anyone who was watching that game on, against Aston Villa saw the passionate Chelsea away support. Oh, it's amazing. Six, and this is the thing, I don't think maybe some of our American friends don't understand is that the UK, although it's small, is a nightmare to get around in terms of driving or public transport on a weeknight it's not 24 hours so Chelsea taking 6,000 fans when we're really shit to an FA Cup replay to a, an away stand where we had basically no chance of winning and making that much noise and showing the team that much support I think it sends a bit of a statement that maybe there's a bit of a detachment from what goes online with Chelsea and what happens in person which I've alluded to previously I think that our fans are fully behind these players. I think they are. The manager, maybe not. And I think that's a bigger conversation. But the away fans in particular, unless everything is like falling apart, they it takes a lot for them to turn. It really does. And they were superb. And like they, they, I feel very happy for them more than anyone else, actually. Because as Chelsea fans, we've had a really, really fucking shit couple of years. Yeah. And I think rough. we're going to talk about this in a bit. But... A cut run like this and a win like that can make a statement and it could be the turning point. Turning point FC. <laughs> I would ask you about who your man of the match is, but I think we both are unanimous in Enzo. Yeah. He has to be the man of the match. I don't think there's anybody else that could you know, match the physicality and, and just the passing and that, that free kick was just amazing. It was awesome. And I have to also give up you know, kudos to both of our wing players, Nico and Nani. I thought they were yeah. fantastic as well. Connor had a great game too. I think it's probably one of his best games in the yeah. Chelsea shirt as well. Uh, I think everyone played. Honestly, yeah. until we made the substitutions, I thought it was a, the best performance of the season by a mile. I actually, it was like, man, do we really want some subs that come in? I yeah. think it was more so getting Caicedo out because I didn't want him to get hurt. He got a little knock. And then unfortunately, Batty Shield get a groin injury at the end of the yeah. game. And we don't know how long he's going to be out. Um, but yeah, I think we have some coverage now with Levi Colwell back in training. So that's going to be pretty adequate. And then maybe Thiago also coming off the bench. Um, Alfie Gilchrist, again, another, another cameo from him. I love it when he comes on the pitch. It's just a real lift for him, yeah, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. It just gets <laughs> me pumped everyone. up. Yeah. I just run around the pub and when I see him get on the pitch, you know, it gives me energy <laughs> as well. 
So yeah, it was a, a great evening, great evening, and we're through to playing dirty Leeds in the next oh, round. Yeah. We haven't played Leeds in the FA Cup since the nineteen seventy final. Do you think they can come up with a narrative of Chelsea Leeds without coming up with the nineteen seventy FA Cup final? No, I, th- I mean it's, every I time I hear so. about Chelsea Leeds, whether it's a Premier League game or a game in in the beginning of a cup or whatever, th- th- that always comes around. Well, nineteen seventy FA Cup final and. I actually saw the highlights. Obviously, none of us probably saw it live. You know, maybe was your dad? Was, did he? Yeah, yeah, he was watched he it. Yeah, no, he went to go to it because okay. actually the the final was at Wembley, but the re- they put, went to replay. Yeah, and the replay was played at Old Trafford. Oh wow! For some reason, yeah, madness. I I think it's a good question about this game because it, it does hold more significance than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Not because only did they bring out that beautiful fiftieth anniversary shirt with both of oh, you. You yeah. and I both have one now. We which do. I'm very very happy about. Um, it's one of the most watched games in English history, TV history, the, the replay. So it's like, you think about some of the biggest games in English football history, England-Germany in the 1966 World Cup final, England-Italy in the Euro 2021 final, other massive, massive national games. Chelsea-Leeds is still up there with one of the highest viewing figures ever because not a lot of TV the games were on TV in the 60s and 70s. So the FA Cup was very, very significant, and it still is for a lot of people. So this game holds a lot of historical significance, and the fact that we've avoided them in the FA Cup since that day, I mean, there's a hatred between Chelsea and Leeds fans that goes back further than this. So it's it's big. It's, it's a lot of history to it, and like it's exciting. I think everyone wanted it. I wanted it. I love playing Leeds. I mean, I hate Leeds, but I love playing them because it's like real vitriol. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you know, my hatred for Leeds, obviously, you know, historically didn't really stem from that FA Cup final, but I did, I just, I was so upset when we lost to him. I think it was when Tuchel was coaching and Aronson scored and got that goal off of Mendy. Really hurt. Yeah, it was just awful. Because that was was a downfall of Tuchel. Yep. That game. And then, you know, going into the next game, the CL, you know, he was fired after that. Yeah. And it was just, it was, it was, that was like the worst turning point for Chelsea. Cause since that game, I think of uh, last year, we just went downhill. Yeah. I mean, if you're ever going to make a bad statement, losing to a team like that, who were hopeless, they got relegated. And to an American year. coach, Jesse March. <laughs> Ted Lasso Ted played. Lasso, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the nature of the performance, that felt like the moment where he was done, yeah. wasn't it? It did feel like it, even though I think, a lot of us probably... I thought he was going to be gone after that, but he survived one more game. I think this is a good turning point to go to one of our... Because we're going to go to our detailed mailbag, but I want to talk a little bit about the FA Cup because I know we've alluded to this previously, but one of our friends, John, who's been on the podcast previously, had mentioned that his value of the FA Cup and the League Cup might be not as strong as the Premier League and the Champions League. And I think this is quite a common thing, not between just our American supporters, but I think from our Chelsea fan base in general. Where where do you stand on the importance of a trophy like the FA Cup and the League Cup in terms of Chelsea and our season? Yeah, I think my, my, my um, standpoint about it has evolved. I think I had the first mindset that, you know, why are we playing all these games? It's a fixture congestion, more chance of people getting hurt, you know, and then after speaking to, you know, traveling there and understanding the historical aspect of the FA Cup, because the FA Cup was the cup before the Premier League, Mm -hmm. you know, came to fruition. That was like the most important tournament in in English football. And seeing when Roman Abramovich took over the club and how important it was for him, you know, and and the coaches um, from there on to have a strong showing these cup games. And then I think just, I mean, just seeing Wembley half-half in a cup final, it's something special. Mm-hmm. It is something special. And 
I love, you know, it gives me so much joy when we beat Tottenham in the semifinals of all these cup competitions in Wembley and seeing them go home and cry. And then the other thing about the FA Cup, which I do love, and the Carabao Cup, which I have more appreciation, is that it also gives, in the earlier rounds, some of our academy players chances mm-hmm. to play against other teams. And it also allows these other clubs from second, third tier um, teams, like, you know, your hometown to Maidstone, to go and experience Premier League grounds, go and experience the atmospheres of that game, and the players are up for it. If you look at this, the equivalents of this cup in Spain, in Italy, in Germany, they're huge. They're huge. You see these draws are being celebrated by these, you know, third-tier teams in Spain when they drew Barcelona at home and how excited those players were. It means a lot for a lot of people in those countries, especially the players themselves. They take pride in these cup competitions. Otherwise, they wouldn't give it 100%. Yeah. I think I understand the perspective of not treating it as seriously because I think there's something that might have evolved in a lot of our mindsets over time. We've been very spoilt as Chelsea fans in the last 20 years. Really, we have. This has not been a common feature of Chelsea's history, the success that we have developed. And I feel that we've gained a lot of new fans and a lot of new understanding about Chelsea. And I feel that with that new understanding comes this idea of like a the Premier League is the be-all and end-all and the Champions League is like the the icing on the cake if you if you manage to qualify it. But the FA Cup has provided some of me, me with some of my favourite ever Chelsea memories. And like it goes back to when I was a young kid as well. And I think that the Premier League has skyrocketed in popularity and it's devalued a lot of other competitions in comparison. And the FA Cup has... The financial rewards are not nearly as high for any finishing in the top half of the Premier League. Like it doesn't even compare. So I understand the logic of that, but it's a trophy. You can you're you compete in football to win, right? That is the thing. It's like, and I've made this point previously. No, I don't remember celebrating a year after uh, coming fourth in the league to get Champions League and not winning a trophy that year. The 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 instant gratification you get from oh okay that means we can afford better players for next season it's not in the moment you don't really appreciate the fact that you have altered the history books by winning an FA Cup like Chelsea had barely ever won the FA Cup before Abramovich took over and now we're one of the most successful teams ever and as I said you compete in football to win like why would you go half-arsed into a competition I feel gutted every time we lose in any competition that has any value, besides maybe the Premier League Summer Series, but we're the only ever undefeated team in that that competition. So there you go. But that's just talking from a Chelsea perspective. I've been to an FA Cup final where we've won. Also, I've been to a League Cup final where we lost. Tottenham's only ever had a trophy in the last God knows how long. I was there and it was horrible. I can guarantee. And when we won the double at Wembley in the FA Cup after winning the league that year when I was there, I don't think I've ever been as happy, really. And I, I... it's crazy maybe that doesn't translate to everyone and I understand that but I feel sheer excitement whenever we play in the cup final no matter what competition it is I think you know and this is doesn't have to do with the FA Cup but the Community Shield you know that's also a competition that people knock you know with the winner of the FA Cup winner of the Premier League plays in the beginning of the year the 2005 Community Shield is the reason why I became a Chelsea fan yeah you know that's when Chelsea beat Arsenal 2-1 Drogba scored two goals I was listening to the game in the middle of this refugee camp in Uganda around around a radio and all, half the kids were going for Chelsea. The other half, the kids were going for Arsenal. And I was, you know, I had no appreciation for club football at all. You know, I, I had this mindset that, 
American football is the most important sport in the world. I mean, this is what I grew up on. And just seeing these kids who have gone through the rigors of awful, awful displacement, you know, internally in Uganda, there's a war going on in northern Uganda. And just the fact that they can take two and a half hours and listen to a game between two teams and have some semblance of hope, you know, and having and seeing, you know, two quality teams at that point. I think Arsenal had won the FA Cup against Manchester United in 2004. Then Chelsea had won the Premier League. That's what they were both playing in the in, in the uh, in the Community Shield. But that's this is the reason why I became a Chelsea fan. So I've always had a sense of appreciation for the cups in a sense that it also gets you into other competitions as well. And, you know, we were gutted when we didn't win the Club World Cup in 2013. Mm-hmm. We were pissed off. I was upset because that was one of the few trophies that Chelsea did not have. And luckily, we got to, we got to win it a couple yeah. of years ago. So I do have this appreciation of these cup competitions. And I think it's something that has grown on me, you know, more so yeah. being a Chelsea fan. And put yourself in the moment. When you lose to Liverpool on penalties twice <sighs> in two cup finals in the same season... I my automatic response was, oh well, it's at least it's not the Premier League or the Champions League. I was devastated with both because you're playing for silverware. It's a final. You've worked an entire season for this, and like this is the moment. And to lose on penalties both to Liverpool, God. And I'll tell you one thing as well. I guarantee every Chelsea supporter is going to feel this. The next time we win a trophy after the few years that we've had, especially the longer it goes between winning another trophy, we haven't won a domestic trophy for five years. Longer now. The next one's going to hit different when we do win. Because that's how I felt the first FA Cup win after not winning one for six years yeah, after I mean, Roman Abramovich. Last one was what, Chelsea against uh, Man U and uh, Hazard hit the yeah, penalty. It's a long time ago. First half now. penalty, yeah, that was a long time ago. So five years ago now. So, that's now, there was you know I mean, there was I think the year before when we had won the Premier League, but then we lost against Arsenal oh. in the FA Cup. I was devastated yeah. in that game because it was just bullshit. You know, it's just a bullshit game. Also, it's called the double for yeah. a reason. The FA Cup and League. It's not yeah. the Champions League and Premier League double. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It's the FA Cup and League domestic double, and so few teams have done it. Chelsea have done it. Manchester City have done it. Manchester United and Arsenal, Liverpool. I think are the only few teams that have done it, and. That's something that I want on our history books. Yeah. I want to do that if again. You, if you talk to Leicester City fans, they'll tell you they'll get they'll they they don't mind being relegated because in the chance they were in the Premier League, they they won the two most coveted titles that they thought. Yeah, the FA Cup and the Premier League. Yeah, you know, at the expense one of them was the expense of us, and the other one we gave it to them right after beating Tottenham. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Give it and take yeah, it away. So that was sort of our sort of thoughts on the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup. And this team, we've noticed under uh, you know under different managers outside of Frank Lampard, we're a pretty good cup team. You know, we were a great cup team on Tuchel, right? How many cup finals did we go to? Yeah. Um, I think even Graham Potter, we played pretty well in the Champions League last year. I mean, we looked like shit during the Premier League, but then when we played Dortmund, we looked fantastic. You know, and then same this year with Pochettino, we're playing very very well in these cup competitions. Yeah, and that was the question we were asking last time: is that with the do we need a change of manager? to get us up for this one game. That was the, my concern that I, I wasn't quite sure if Pochettino had the capabilities of doing that. We'll see. But I know we'll talk about this in our mailbag in a bit, but I think it's a really important trophy. And speaking perspective as well, like I've got very vested interest in this next round of the FA Cup for me, Chelsea Leeds. And also from Maidstone's perspective as well, it's the biggest game in their history in the fifth round of the FA Cup. And like 
seeing the significance and what it's done to to the press of that team and like change the trajectory of those smaller clubs for the rest of, rest of their history, it's amazing. So we're gonna go to our mailbag for some questions, and Simon has them uh, queued up. I, in, in full disclaimer, I don't know some of these questions, and so uh, we'll be I'll probably answer them off the fly. So we'll see how it goes. Manny, what gel do you use in your hair? I'm joking. <laughs> no gel. <laughs> it's all natural. Oh, there we go. Thanks for that question. Um, so first of all, we got two questions from our friend Koshek, actually, who, for the previous episode, but we were on such a depressive streak that <laughs> we didn't really get to any questions. So we've got a couple here. Um, so he said it would be fine interesting to hear about the culture amongst Chelsea fans and the impatient of immediate success and desire to f- and to fire managers at the detriment of long-term stability at the club over the years and continuing into this season. So I think what the question was there, maybe a cultural difference between England England attitude and America? I think this also has to be a a cultural mindset of Chelsea old versus Chelsea new, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at, you know, during the Amramovich years, Chelsea was the only club in the Premier League that would sack managers even after a semblance of success. Other teams wouldn't do it. How long was Ferguson, you know, at Man U? How long did... You know, Arsene Winger was at Arsenal. I think he was probably there three or four years too long, in my opinion. Ten years yeah, too Yeah, maybe. Long. Yeah, exactly. But Chelsea was the only club that continuously sacked managers regardless. I mean, Ancelotti, I thought it was one of the worst sackings we ever had uh, in Chelsea history. You know, and we sacked him and we, we looked incredible that year, you know. So I think that the culture of sacking managers, it's more of a mindset of Chelsea fans. I think that with the old regime, of course, it, you know, it happened with this new regime. We've had, we've you know we've gone through what three or four managers already with them. Now to his question about you know in terms of American and English fans, I can only speak for American fans. I mean, we're used to in the sports that we see here in the U.S. There's there's pretty high turnover in in management and, and coaches. You only see a few teams that will have coaching you know for a longevity like Bill Belichick at the Patriots, right, or Andy Reid at the Kansas City Chiefs. In basketball, you'll see these top-level coaches that will move around. Maybe Steve Kerr is probably a long-standing coach at Golden State. But the other teams will recycle coach because there's always this wanting to improve, wanting to get better. And so I think as Americans, we're used to seeing coaches, you know, being recycled and fired. You know, there's a few te- there's a few these dynasty teams in college sports and, and professional sports where you see these coaches that were there um, for a long term. But I can't speak for our English countrymen. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. It's a very good one as well. I think that the long-term success of a team by just sticking with the manager, I think, is a quite a rare thing in English football. So if you're looking at Guardiola in particular, the sustained success for a long period of time, he's an incredible manager, probably the best ever, one of the best ever, but just the most amount of resources and well-structured club around it. Other than that, this generation is, doesn't really have those kind of coaches. I feel that the way that English football is, there's such jeopardy and such impatience for not performing that Chelsea have seen it in the last two years that things can go wrong very, very quickly. And it's far easier to change the manager than it is to sell your entire team. It's very, It's a lot easier to do that. And I think that whether people like it or not, I think a lot of fans don't like changing the manager that quick. I think Chelsea fans are just more used to it because that was how we garnered so much success and it was a success, successful strategy. I think that the New York Yankees' old owner, um, George Steinbrenner, Steinbrenner yeah. used to follow that philosophy of like 
you know, if it's not a success, this is winning, win or bust. If we don't win, you haven't done a good enough job. And I think Abramovich um, went that same way as well. I I don't know. It's a tricky one. This this is the other thing you have to keep in perspective, right? With with sports in Europe versus sports in the U.S., this whole mindset of relegation. These these clubs in Europe, there's so much pressure to be performed and not to be relegated. There's millions and millions of dollars on the line, so there's always this propensity to sack coaches, regardless of how the club is behaving, you know, from a financial mindset, because they cannot get relegated. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll notice these teams, your Bournemouth, your Luton Towns, or your you know whatever your well not Luton Town, but you saw it with Sheffield, right? They brought back Chris Walter. These teams are going to sack their coaches when it comes to this point in order to stave off relegation because that's such a high amount of money in lost income, right? When Leicester got relegated, they lost millions of dollars, millions of dollars. And then there's now lawsuits about Everton and maybe they should have been relegated mm-hmm. with the other teams that went down, you know, from the financial play uh, aspect of it. In the U.S., there is no threat of relegation. These teams in, in professional sports are going to get their money no matter what. The SEC, which is a college uh, conference um, for the English listeners out there, it's the Southeastern Conference. They just, the article came out yesterday that there's over $200 million worth of revenue that they're going to divvy up to all the all the, the teams in the SEC. Teams like Vanderbilt, who've done fuck all, you know, in college football, are not going to leave the Southeastern Conference because that's, that's a crap ton of money that they're mm-hmm. going to get. There is no threat of relegation in college sports or in professional sports in the U.S. And so the propensity of sacking coaches may not be as volatile as it is in Europe because that's a lot of lost revenue. Yeah. And that's a really good point. I think that a huge cultural difference with English football in particular is like compared to things like the NFL and baseball in particular because there's so many games and just the fact that teams get incentivized to lose in a lot of American sports because it helps them with longer-term planning and the competitive balance. Losses are far more important in English football than they are in any other in any other realm, really. Or in European football or competitive football, not like the MLS where there's no relegation there. So I think fans do react quickly and they see what has to change. Something has to change in a lot of seasons. Some teams are so much worse than everyone else. And because of transfer windows and other other factors as well, you can't get rid of entire squads worth of players. So you have to change something. Are you going to change the board? Well, Chelsea can't change the board for 10 years because it's written in that they have to be in the club for 10 years and injecting money into it. So what's the easiest thing to do? To change something quickly. And you know what? A lot of the time it works. It does work. And I think there is a bit of a myth about sticking with a manager long term. I feel that in it's the exception, not the rule that it yeah, works. Yeah, there's only term. what a handful of managers are gonna do that with Klopp, Guardiola, Ferguson. Ferguson. I wouldn't put Wenger into that category. No, I mean even like the coaches like Conte, Tuco Tuco, Mourinho, they've been sacked left and right. Yeah. And I don't think you can the, the game moves so quickly as well. So one of the amazing things about Guardiola, and I don't want to rave about him too much, but he manages to change things and recycle and start again. Football moves on very quickly. It feels very... Anto, we mentioned this last time. Antonio Conte's tactics feel very antiquated now. Feels like people have moved on from that kind of football. When he was seen as an innovator, when he moved us to a back three at Chelsea, I think football tactics has evolved so quickly in the last few years 
that some managers just get left in behind. Like Mourinho, I think, has really suffered from the advancement of the coaching. And if you look at coaches like the Bournemouth manager, like Unai Emery, who who are getting the best out of, you know, probably not global superstars, but great, great coaching yeah. and tactical innovation. I feel that football, the long term, is not not necessarily desirable. Yeah. I do want to say, sorry, it was $741 million the Ooh. SEC doled out to the uh, to the teams through their revenue sharing model. That's a lot of money. It's like $51 million per. Wow. So for gonna, college athletics. Can you believe that? And none of these players get paid, right? Well, they, they do now. There's an image and likeness deal with it. So, I mean, that's a whole topic for another conversation. It's called wow. NIL. Crazy. So we're going to have a different direction here uh, for our next question. It's our friend Michael again, who sent in a very good question this Today. It's very topical to outside of Chelsea, but they're eager to hear our opinions. So they have announced the idea of testing blue cards and sin bins in football and soccer. One blue card equals 10 minutes in the penalty box. Two equals a red. What are y'all's thoughts? Y'all, I said. Y'all. This is my thoughts on the blue cards. How about we get fucking the current rules correct? <laughs> How about we try and focus on the current rules and, and, and our current play correct? Because right now, Premier League... Uh, officiating is atrocious atrocious on field and in the var you want to introduce a whole new concept of blue cards how about we fucking get the current shit right you know let's call the fouls when they're called let's let's call these penalties when in the box because we got screwed out of two penalties against liverpool let's fix that and you're giving so much more power now to the referee and we've noticed it today. I think, um, who's that motherfucker at the Battle of the Bridge? Clattenburg. <laughs> he came out and said, I think it was an article today, yeah, Roy Keane came up to me and he pressured me to give a corner kick. I knew it was a goal kick, but I was like, I don't want to deal with him, so I'm going to give him a corner kick. There is legit, legit bullshit happening. That's in, corruption. That's yes, corruption, it? <laughs> yeah. The PJMOL, it's, it's a cabal of just corruption. We need to get this shit correct. That's the rules that we have right now before we try to introduce something else. You know, these blue cards, just, there's going to be so much uh, subjectivity. And a referee, yeah, you, you get 10 minutes. You get 10 minutes. I mean, it's like Oprah, you know, out there. Everybody's got the blue card if they crowd the ref. It just makes no sense. Let's try to fix the current rules right now. Get that shit stabilized before try, we try to introduce a whole new concept of blue cards. Credit to Michael on that question. You will not see this, but that question lit a fire under Manny that I've never seen before. Your eyes went completely focused and at rage at these officials where I could I could relate. I'd probably get a blue card, right? Yeah, you get a blue card. <laughs> get a blue time card off for descent. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to break the habit of a lifetime and go for a more measured response here. Okay, so I'm indifferent to the suggestion because no one has explained to me why it's a good thing. I don't think change is a bad thing necessarily. I think there's been some innovations that have really worked well in football. So the goal line technology has been an amazing innovation. Five no, subs. Yeah. No one has explained to me what is to be gained from this. What what changes are to be made what what are we going to get from this? Why is this desirable? And even if it was explained to me, I don't trust the people who are inst installing it because, as you said, like I think VAR is a good idea, but it's been applied terribly because the officials are fucking morons and they're being led by a fucking moron, Howard Webb in England. So where do you like that? Has no it gives me no trust about anything that they bring in now. Because why would you trust them? 
as you said, get the fundamentals of what's happening right first and then bring in an extra card. Maybe they've got an agreement with a printer to make lots of blue stuff. I don't know, they've got financial incentives, but try to explain to me why it's a good thing and then I'll make my opinion. Just dropping it in. But I do do find the the clamour about, don't change the game, it's perfect. (laughs) Don't change the game, it's perfect. Well, it's not, is it? So, like... If there are ways to make it better, I'm all for it. I just don't understand the value of it. Yeah, I think if they're going to make any rule changes, I'm happy with the five subs. I'm happy that that took it took a year for us to get that finally. I mean, all the other leagues were doing it. We're the only antiquated league that still had three subs, you know, after COVID. So I'm happy that happened. But I want like automatic offside technology that they had in World Cup. Why can't we add that into you know the rules? I'm okay with the concussion sub. That's great. You know, I'm okay with this added extra time because there is a lot of time wasting and I'm okay with them adding all this time to the detriment of Chelsea sometimes, but it's important that the fans and uh, viewers at home get to see football for, you know, for more than 60 or 50 minutes. That's normally played, right? Um, But, you know, adding these new rules in when we haven't even fixed our current state is just ridiculous. If you want to, if you, if you look at the minds, this whole like argument of blue cards, you know, punishing players that crowd the ref or punishing players that dive or whatnot, maybe do it retrospective. Yeah. You know, like, Oh, you know, we, this guy, that was a clear dive. It was, it was unethical. You're going to have to set up the next game. If you know, or accumulate these blue cards, you know, after the fact and be like, Hey, you had three blue cards after that. You're not going to play the next game. I've got an idea that I think every fan would love. If a referee gets a VIR decision incorrect, the ref has to walk home. Yeah. Or give them a blue card, right? Give them a blue card. Send the ref. It's called the green card, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a referee card, right? The green card. You know, did you get your green card yet, Simon? <laughs> yeah, let's punish the refs. Yeah. Let's punish the refs, exactly. not punish the fans of the players. It's just, that, I mean, you know, they're giving so much power to the referees, but there's no accountability on no. their end. Ridiculous. At all. I mean, they clearly, like, you know, as, as penalties were awful against us. Wolves have been done in multiple times by the refereeing, and they just get an apology letter. That's it. Yeah. So we're going to go to our final couple of questions and I'm going to tie these together because I feel that they're linked and we've been avoiding this conversation so far. Yeah. But this, let's end on this. So uh, we got a, a message on Instagram from the Cup Chasers who said, will Pochettino ever play the same team back-to-back games, same style formation personnel? And that ties into the question that we got from our friend Meg. Are there any circumstances that you would want Poch to stay? It's unlikely that he'll win both cuts, but does that change your mind? You can go first. I think from the Cup Chasers, and thank you so much for the question from the Cup Chasers. Great podcast they have as well. I think with Poch, I think we've commented on this before. Um, you know, his his sort of stubbornness to have any sort of tactical flexibility when it came in our left fullback position, playing players out wide, maybe going back to a back three. I think his 4-4-2 formation was spot on against this particular team, Villa. They play a high line. It's easy to have both Connor and Palm, uh, Cole Palmer and Connor up to, up top to you know help, help with the pressing, but also when they get the ball to make those runs or come, drop deep and have Nico and Nani make those runs in the wide positions. Against other teams that play you know, more of like a very conservative style, you know, I, um, it's going to be much more difficult for that four four two formation to sort of be in fruition. I think the question is, are we going to have more stability in our starting lineup? You know, and I would, I want this. I think what you saw this past game is a starting lineup I want to see, you know, moving forward, maybe in Cuckoo coming in. 
or Carney, but that's the only changes. I don't want to see Mudrick on the starting on the pitch. And I, I know he's one of your friends, Simon. I don't want to see uh, Sterling on the pitch until they earn it. You know, these players that we saw play against Villa were just amazing. They're awesome in that game, and they just brought the energy. And I want those same players to continue playing, you know, from here on out. Second question, what will it take for Pochettino, you know, to not get fired? I'm still on the Poch out train, even though we won one game. I'm going to be honest with you. Because it's, you know, somebody's resume is not just based on one case or one game. It's, you take the season as a whole, right? Obviously, Pochettino has been dealt a bad hand, right? A bunch of young players, inexperienced players. And also the injury crisis, right? But what we didn't see Pochettino do, which, which you cannot, but you do have to have some sort of mindset about when it is a coach's problem, is this inability to change tactics. It happened this game. What happened moving forward? Ultimately, I'm not the one that's going to be deciding if he gets fired or not. I think for the board, for him to, I think he's probably going to stay for the rest of the season now, unless we get through a horrible, you know, poor run. But for the board to keep him past the summer, I think it's going to take him to win one of these two cup finals and maybe get a European uh, position. Yeah, I think our thoughts are quite closely aligned on that one. I think the personnel lineup. I will give him some some sympathy. The fact that. One of the main reasons I think we haven't seen a settled starting lineup is the injuries. It's been just like a merry-go-round of different injured players, but that injury list is declining now. So he has to play, in my mind, he has to play a close t- a team that he can to Wednesday night in our next game. I know Nkunku is amazing, but I think you need to reward good performances with starting positions. Like you, I'm not convinced that one game can change my opinion about this manager. I think I've been sucked into that thinking before that when we've come off the back of terrible results, we then have a good performance and then I think, oh, well, our problems are saved. Listen, I don't think the players are not playing for him. That is one thing. I think that they are playing for him. However, do I have faith in him that he can set the team up properly consistently against differing opposition? I don't think so. I think... If you look at the, all three games that we played Aston Villa this season, we lost against them at Stamford Bridge, but that was when we went down to 10 men. We actually played quite well up until that moment, and we had a new number of opportunities to score that we absolutely ballsed up, thanks Raheem Sterling. The second game at Stamford Bridge, we were very good for 60 minutes, and then we were very good against Villa this time. I think the way that Villa set up suits the way Pochettino wants to play. It's the other games where we're going to real find, really find out what he's made of. And the jury is still on it. I don't think he's good enough. But I'm open to having my mind changed. We have a pretty tough fixture schedule coming up. You know, we have obviously Crystal Palace. They're going through their own injury crisis right now. It's a must-win game. Mm-hmm. It's a must-win game Absolutely. With, with the players that they have out in that game. But after that, we have City. Huge game. We have Liverpool in the cup final. Tottenham game is probably going to get moved. Then we have Leeds in the FA Cup. Brentford and then Newcastle. There's some pretty tough games coming up in the mm-hmm. Chelsea schedule. And this is going to be probably the Pochettino's toughest stretch of the season for him to survive. It's not more so can he win cups, but is it, can he get enough points going through that this rigor of the schedule? He has to have he has to win those must-win games. Crystal Palace, Leeds, Brentford, maybe Newcastle at home. Those are the four games he has to win. The cup final, I I would hope that we win that game. It's always depends on the circumstance of the game itself. Yeah, it's luck. Huge you amount know. of luck in those as well. Yeah, but then Man City put up a fight. Don't get played out the park like we did at St. James Park or at Old Trafford yeah. or at Anfield. 
we look not only do we lose, we look like shit in those games. Yeah. It's it's a manner of how we play yeah. in order for him to keep his job. That's exactly what I was gonna say. I think that if we watch the team capitulate in the same clueless fashion that they did, specifically at Anfield, I think that was the one that really got me, I think, because the way that a team that you know how they're going to play against you and we were just not prepared tactically at all. We'll see. It's important, these games, not necessarily to win all of them, but to, to see the nature of the performances. I think that is what we need to see now. And I will say, though, this, though, if if he gets fired, there's not, you know, any new manager that comes in to this team is going to have the same problems and issues that Pacino had, you know, with this current squad. Inexperience. Inexperience. This is the most inexperienced Premier League team in all the Premier League, right? We have two players that are that have had some Premier League experience in the past, mm-hmm. and both of them are not starting now. You know, this team is young. They're going to be prone to make mistakes, 100%. In-game, they're going to make mistakes. We saw it in the beginning of the Aston Villa. The first five minutes, Villa were on the run. You know, they could have scored a goal yeah. in the first five minutes, then we sort of clambered down. So any new manager that comes in, whether it's, Conte or Josie, you know, or Hansi Flick or whoever, I think the Girona managers now, a new name that's being talked about, is going to find the same difficulties that Poch has. It's the in-game influence and yep. setting the team up. That's what makes a difference with the squad. Yeah. That game against Liverpool, there was no change in tactics. The game against the Wolves, there was no change in tactics. You saw Gary O'Neill see his squad squander a couple of chances in the beginning and say, you know what, we got to change the way we do things Yeah. in both games. You saw Klopp. He, we, I thought Chelsea outplayed uh, Liverpool in the first game of the year. The Bridge. He knew that. He know. He knew that that team that he had in the Liverpool in the first game of the year. That midfield was very, very inexperienced. They gained experience throughout the season, and he outcoached Poch in that at Anfield throughout the whole ninety minutes. And Pochettino did not make any tactical changes in the game. At that point, he should be like, you know what? We're on the back foot. Let's switch to a back three. Let's play both of our midfielders more centrally. You know, a three-five-two, have our wide players there also to help out, and then just go on the counter. Never did that. No. Yeah, I think that's it. That's the difference, isn't it? You can excuse inexperience and individual mistakes when they happen. The setup of the team is inexcusable if you get it wrong or adjusting in game. And he adjusted against Villa. Long may it continue. That brings us to the end of this episode. Again, we want to thank all of you listeners out there to tuning in for us each and every single week on Chelsea against the world. It's been a fun ride, 51 episodes down, hopefully another 50 before next year. And um, we want to continue um, harping about the Premier League Fan Fest that's coming to Nashville. We want to invite all uh, Chelsea listeners abroad and here in the U.S. to come to Nashville. It's a great city. You get to hang out with Simon and I for a couple of days. We'll buy you a pint. Please do follow us on all our social media accounts for a CATW podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or X, and TikTok. And if you've got any questions for us in our mailbag, we've really enjoyed doing these mailbag episodes where we're answering our listener questions. We're at podcastcatw at gmail.com. Please do give us a five-star review review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. We're trying to get, get to as many people as we possibly can. And uh, we'll see you next time. Keep the faith. And let's hopefully beat Crystal Palace on Monday. Take care.